Okay. Hey everybody, it's me Tom, your favorite Mamby Pamby Mormon. I wanted to read some uh, fan mail here. Dear Mormon Expression, love your show. Is there a way I can maybe get my voice on the show? Well, faithful listener, you'll be pleased to know the Mormon Expression is holding our first annual essay contest. The rules are simple. All you need to do is record your personal essay that has something or anything to do with Mormonism. Entries need to be no longer than 10 minutes in length, and, they, and they're all due by July 1st. And of course, the winning essay will be awarded $100. Each submission will be combined into a personal essay show, and then released as an official Mormon Expression podcast. All you need to do to enter is to send your digital recording in any format to mail at mormonexpression.com. Alright, next letter here. Dear Mormon Expression, I hate all of this online bullshit. Is there a way to actually meet people and to talk to real people, you know, in real life? Well, <laughs> Mormon Expression is also holding our first annual live podcast reception. It will be held on Friday, August 6th at the University of Utah in the Student Union Building in the Crimson View Room. Doors will open at 6.30 p.m. and the recording starts at 7. We'll have refreshments and we'll also have some awesome door prizes as well. But, be aware, space is limited, so you'll need to purchase and reserve your tickets by going to mormonexpression.com or email us at mail at mormonexpression.com. Hope we got all you fans covered. Welcome back to another edition of uh, Mormon Expression. I'm your host, John Larson. And tonight we're joined by three of our regulars. Um, first of all, from the uh, West Coast, we have um, uh, George. How you doing, George? Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me on tonight. Uh, great to hear you. Uh, glad to be here. All right. And uh, in nearby sunny Las Vegas, we have the one and only Mike. How you doing, Mike? Hello, doing good. Uh, welcome back, Mike. Thank um, you. And then from the golden shores of Japan, we have Glenn. How are you doing, Glenn? Ohio gozaimasu. I'm good. Ohio. All right. All right. Um, tonight we're doing uh, the next installment in our uh, uh, supposed dummies series. Uh, the dummies ones are where we dummies get together and talk about something without an expert on. Um, and what we try to do is explore sort of in-depth some aspect of uh, church history that might be a little foggy or um, confusing or not as well known. So tonight we are talking about the first vision. Um, the first vision is really important as far as church goes, um, especially today, although that wasn't always the case. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, it, it's, it's really paraded around as sort of the beginning of Mormonism and the key foundation of one of Mormonism's distinctive doctrines. Anybody want to take a venture of what doctrine that is? Doctrine of continuing revelation? <laughs> no, the personalities of the Godhead. Yes, that God and Jesus are two separate, distinct people. Woohoo! Uh, um, Yay! <laughs> <laughs> All right, I, I pulled out a couple of um, quotes 
um, just from a couple years recently. Um, first of all, we have uh, Gordon B. Hinckley in the first presidency message that ends in February 20, 2007. We have a perfect knowledge of the nature of God that has come through the first vision of the prophet Joseph. He saw God. He heard him speak. He saw his son. He heard him speak. And he could speak to them. There was no question in his mind about the true nature of God. What a tremendous thing that is. You got that tremendous. That's definitely a Hinckley statement. <laughs> this is from the 2004 True to the Faith book that the church published. For your testimonies of the restored gospel to be complete, it must include a testimony of Joseph Smith's divine mission. The truthfulness of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints rests on the truthfulness of the first vision and the other revelations the Lord gave to the prophet Joseph. I mean, that sort of states it very clearly. The, the testimony of the Mormon Church rests on this story being true. Yeah, I remember hearing those and and being very impressed. And I was a I was a huge I've always been a huge fan of, of President Hinckley, and remember that talk and how impressed I was with it. And that was one of the the early things that kind of caught me off guard a little bit because when I was was reading um, Bushman, I was surprised to see that. That uh, some of these things and the stories of the first vision weren't known by the early early members, and we had always wondered about that. But that statement by President Hinckley always impressed me. Yeah, we'll get into that a little bit more here as the evening yeah. proceeds. Thanks. Okay, uh, here's one by Ezra Taft Benson from the First Presidency Message, April 1993. The appearance of God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ to Joseph Smith is the greatest event that has ever occurred in the world since the resurrection of the Master. As the restored Church of Jesus Christ, we humbly and gratefully bear this witness to all men. It is the truth intended for all of our Father's children. Uh, Brother Benson there, not mincing words. The greatest event since the, uh, um, since the resurrection. Okay, and here's the last one. Um, this is from Helen Whitney's um, two th uh, 2007 documentary for PBS on the Mormons. Uh, Gordon B. Hinckley, in, in his interview, said this, Well, either it's true or it's false. If it's false, we're engaged in a great fraud. If it's true, it's the most important thing in the world. Now that's the whole picture. It is either right or wrong, true or false, fraudulent or true. And that's exactly where we stand, with a conviction in our hearts that is true, that Joseph went into the sacred grove, that he saw the Father and the Son, that he talked with them. That's our claim. That's where we stand, and that's where we fall, if we fall. But we don't. We just stand secure in the faith. I think to give a little uh, perspective on things, we, we should look at uh, soon after Christ's ministry, um, a lot of members of the church might think that Christ's church failed or, or, or the apostasy set in so fast it was a real problem. But, uh, you know, the apostasy was set in by about 110 A.D. and all these truths got lost. Wait, wait, Mike. About who God Mike, was. Mike, Mike, Mike. Yes, go ahead. Prove it. I mean, where where did you just get that? 110 A.D. What happened in 109 A.D.? Well, I'm saying it was it was fully set in by. How then. do you know? <laughs> but just you can look, you can go back and look at old quotes from uh, people of that time period about what they were speaking about Christ and the Father. And one of the first things we lost was the idea that uh, that the Father and Son being two separate beings. I mean, you you go to like uh, 50 A.D. You have quotes by Justin Martyr giving. Uh, True statements regarding the separation of the Father and the Son. 
But uh, you get a little further down the road, and, and these truths, you can see they get diluted when okay. you start reading the, these old quotes. Okay, I, I see. You're, you're arguing that the sign of apostasy of the church um, was due to the uh, Christology there when we started getting Trinitarian. You start getting Trinitarian, you start getting two-year waiting periods to get baptized, you start getting uh, a whole number of things. Um, but one thing you have to look at is that the world at that time was pagan. And even though the ship of Christianity was taken over by other leaders, even though the old logbook that they had on the ship was, was cast aside, the ship itself remained of Christianity, and the ship battled successfully against paganism. And even though it wasn't the true church, it was able to get the teachings of Christ out there so that by the time Joseph Smith comes around to bring the fullness of the gospel, the world is Christian enough to to accept the fullness of the gospel that Christ tried to set up when he was here. Okay, I mean, you're giving a traditional Mormon take, you know, and of course, at the Council of Nicaea, which was 325, that's when we have really the codified uh, Trinitarian view. But I, Yeah, things I, really went bad by then. I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that it's true that at the time they weren't really um, clear on whether or not God and Jesus were separate, but it's also true at the time they weren't really clear on whether or not Jesus Christ was even divine. So I think it's a Mormon sort of um, overlay on history to even just suggest that hey, this is proof that Mormonism is is the original church and there's an, an apostasy because everything that was taught there, you know, as you say, pre-Justin Martyr, does not necessarily jive with Mormonism. Well, you know, here I got a quote from Justin Martyr here. The father of the universe has a son who also being the first begotten word of God is even God. So they understood that Christ was God but was a separate person in those early days. Okay, I think I'm going <clears> to <throat> table this one for a while. I mean, it's an interesting talk, but... Uh... Let's get back to the first vision. But it's, hey, it's so I wanted to interject here a little bit as we get back into the first vision. So I kind of came from that missionary era that this was we, we kind of hung our, ourselves out on on that limb as well that said it's all about Joseph Smith. I was in that uh, era in the early 80s where the first uh, discussion was Joseph Smith and nothing but Joseph Smith. And it it kind of gave us that sense of difference, that sense of identity, that that was the leading message that we went into. Um, it wasn't even the Book of Mormon. You know, we didn't even introduce the Book of Mormon in the first discussion. It was all about the first vision. And Is that so different that, now? I believe it changed in the mid-80s, didn't it? So we went in with the message of Christ first, and then later on we introduced the book of Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon. Isn't that correct? Yeah, the my first discussion, which uh, I was a missionary in the early '90s, started with um, Christ and God. Um, so, Joseph yeah, I guess I was. All, it was all Joseph Smith. I think believe the first two discussions, and some you know, most times I we ever never got past the first one, and it was Joseph Smith and Joseph Smith only. All right, this comes from a um, an official church, the official church press release, July fifth, two thousand seven, called Approach. Um, approaching church history. The quote says, But to deny the church's miraculous history is to deny its very foundation. During an interview for the recent PBS documentary The Mormons, Elder Marlon K. Jensen, church historian and a member of the high-ranking Quorum of the Seventy, was asked why Mormon history is taken so literally and not simply treated as a myth. In response, he said, The viewing history as a figment of language or imagination takes away its essential meaning from the perspective of believers. For example, Joseph Smith's miraculous visions give real meaning to the lives, to their lives, not because of their symbolic value, but because they actually happened. Now, 
in reading all these quotes here, I just want to make a couple things clear. One, um, for Mormons and for Mormon teaching today, the events we're going to talk about are literal and true. You can't be a good Mormon and assume these things just happened in Joseph Smith's mind. Um, and there are several key doctrinal points that hang on these things. One, God hears and personally answers prayers. I think that's important. Two, there is a personal devil that attempts to stop the progress of the work. Three, the Mormon concept of Godhead um, is opposed to the Trinitarian view, as any evangelical will tell you. Um, I think the next most important thing is the first vision separates Joseph Smith from his questionable past. You know, remember before this, he was a gold digger. And this marks his beginning for Mormons as a prophet or a prophet in training and separates him from his, uh, his, uh, his nefarious beginning. And finally, it distinguishes from classic reform movements. So, you know, you, you at this time, especially during the, you know, that, that burned over district and that Reformation period going through the United States, there were lots and lots and lots of movements. And why is Joseph Smith's movement any more special? Well, it's more special because of this event that God and Jesus appeared to Joseph Smith in person. John, I think those are all good points. I, I think the, the one that, that I would question a little bit is that I think it was the fourth one that you had about the nefarious past. I, I don't know how many just general members of the church would really acknowledge that there was a nefarious past to be distinguished from. You know, the, the early stories of Joseph Smith as a kid, I, you know, that I remember are how diligent he was in refusing the alcohol when he was getting that bone surgery, you know, and, and that's really all I grew up with knowing about him and that he studied the Bible with his family. Um, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I guess maybe I'm going to, uh, um, talking more to apologists at this point, because, okay. you know, we, we, we have Joseph Smith, um, you know, uh, digging wells and looking for peep stones and, and hunting buried treasure and stuff like that. And you have to somehow take those, those sort of necromancer, um, y you know, palm reading tasks and say, well, when does that end and Mormonism begin? And here you have a, a, a mark saying, now we know Joseph Smith is a prophet. Because otherwise, why is this boy selected? Well, he's been selected because he has been selected. And we know he's been selected because God appeared to him. Yeah, it's Moroni that works that other stuff out of him before he allows him to continue as a prophet. Moroni doesn't whip. allow him to. Well, Moroni doesn't allow him to touch the plates until he shakes off that that old attitude. Okay. <laughs> Never heard that before, but th that's awesome. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that. All right. Um, so tonight we're going to go through four uh, accounts of the first vision. Um, there are several out there there's by my account there's about nine um but there's four that we can trace back to joseph smith either directly or indirectly um and the four accounts we're going to discuss are the 1832 um account from the kirtland letter book which was later published in 1834 but we do have the original 1832 version um there's the 1835 version from the joseph smith diary um from november 9th 1835 um, there's the 1838 version from James Mulholland's journal, which, ironically enough, is the official version, although the official version that we have today has been edited by an unknown person. And then we have the 1842 version from the Wentworth letter, um, which was published um, in Times and Seasons. That's where we can see that account. And, of course, the Wentworth letter is also the source, um, although once again modified, for the, um, the Articles of Faith. 
Um, the other account, accounts that you see kind of hanging around out there that are that are kind of contemporary with Joseph Smith, meaning they weren't written after he was dead, there's the 1840 Orson Pratt um, account, which is an interesting account of several remarkable visions. There's the 1842 Orson Hyde, Ein Ruf aus der Wüster, or something like that, A Cry in the Wilderness, um, which was written in German. Um, and there's an 1843 Pittsburgh Gazette interview. Those three came about when Joseph Smith was alive, but we don't know that Joseph Smith saw them or edited them, or so they could contain erroneous information. So all of these four either ha- either were penned by him or were penned under his direction? Yeah, that, that we can trace that, for example, they were published in, you know, like um, the Wentworth letter was published in Times and Seasons, um, it is likely that he wrote that. I can't remember if the Wentworth letter is in his handwriting or not. But he had control, editorial control over Times and Seas in 1842. So it's reasonable to assume that he had, he was able to see it. Of course, the Kirtland letter book and Joseph Smith diary are, you know, are very closely connected to him. So these are the ones that are most likely to be from the prophet's own um, voice. Okay, yeah, thanks. Stay- good, good clarification. He states the Wentworth letters. Uh, I have written the following sketch in the rise and progress of the saints. So I think the Wentworth letter was written by Joseph. Yeah, uh, we get into some issues uh, later in church history where modern um, historians question the validity of some of the things were written, even by somebody as usually trustworthy as William Clayton, you know, who's written a, a lot of the um, uh, a, a lot of the revelations appear in the Doctrine and Covenants. But William Clayton also wrote the account dealing with the Kinderhook plates, and a lot of apologists question whether or not that was really Joseph Smith who wrote what William Clayton did. So we just want to establish that these ones are have the best provenance out there. Can I, no, can and, I throw in... Go ahead, Mike. I was just, I was just going to throw in uh, the earliest account we have is one that everybody has in the Scriptures. It's in Doctrine and Covenants, section 20. And it's just a short one. It's verse 5. It says, After it was truly manifested under the first that he had received remission of his sins, he was again entangled in the vanities of the world. So he mentions there that he'd received remission of his sins uh, which we'll find out later is, is what Christ tells him when he sees him. Now, when was that one um, written and published? I don't have that's my... Since the, that's section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants. It was April of 1830. So oh. that predates the 1832 account that we have, which is longer and more detailed. But this is just a mention that he'd received remission of his sins. And then he goes on to talk about how he saw Moroni and dealt with him. Well, see, this goes to the point that I made my number four that you guys all thought was weird. Um that when Joseph did roll out the first vision, oftentimes it was to establish that he was separated from his past. And here, once again, he's affirming, he's asserting, I've been forgiven for all my sins. So whatever you hear, Jesus has said that's okay. Well, we, we get into, when, when he go, later on approaches Moroni, uh, he kind of props up the rock and sees gold plates and goes for it because, you know, gold. And Moroni shocks him and says, you're not going to touch it until you you lose this attitude that you have. You, and so it's, what, uh, four years later that he finally is able to touch the plates and, and begin his work because Moroni tells him you need to change your attitude and stop your uh, sinful condition, this greed that you have for treasure, which is understandable because his family was so poor. True. <laughs> All right. Um, for the yeah. first, go ahead, go ahead. Well, yeah, just the thing that I wanted to add before before we get into the details, and, and I, I hope, John, as we go through these, uh, that, that you point out the the discrepancies, you know, that, that you see between the accounts, because when, when I look at them, I, I see differences, but I, I don't really see that there's anything like a smoking gun. 
kind of kind of difference with them. Um, and and I'm looking at this from you know my my folklore background where I, I was trained to to look at tale types, which is kind of like a, a general outline of what a story follows. You know, like the child sees the, the conflict in the religious world, prays to God with questions, struggles with an unseen power, and receives a heavenly vision, you know, some general outline like that. And I think with the with the uh, exception of, you know, struggling with an unseen power, it, it, everything is pretty much the same, like from a tale type with all of these different accounts. And some of the, the motifs, some of the details that go in are a little bit different, but I don't know. I, I don't, I don't see that there's a, a big difference um, between all of them. So I, I, I'll, I'll be looking forward as we go through these to, to having those point out and maybe being illuminated because I haven't studied this as much as, as you have. Well, I see, um, just to kind of tip my hand at the beginning, I see several key important things that happen in these accounts. Yeah. First of all, events that are described internally for Joseph Smith become external events. We'll see the language that he uses. He uses in the beginning early accounts to describe these internal things, almost like he's having a dream. And as they get, as they, as they, um, progress in time, they get more and more concrete. Now, if you read information on, um, witnesses in, in the courts, they talk about that same thing happening with those guys, too. You can interview somebody who witnessed, say, a murder two years after, and they're, they hedge more than they do nine years after because those events get solidified in their memory. Yeah. Um, I think that Joseph Smith looks better and better in the, in the accounts. Um, and the language that Joseph Smith used to describe himself becomes more grandiose. I think the internal events become bigger or more poignant. He, if each account, he ups the ante a little bit more. And once again, I will we'll walk through. I'll walk you through everywhere I see this. Um, right. The supporting events, the the things that he describes around the event, become bigger and larger and more concrete. The key events move from internal to external events. The events described become more concrete. I said as time passes, and the account um, evolves to match contemporary doctrinal innovations. If you're looking for a smoking gun, that's it. In 1832, it matches the 1832 version of the Mormons. In 1838, it matches the 1838 version of the Mormons. In 1842, it matches the 1842. So Joseph Smith is obviously retelling the story to match the, all the other stuff that he's that's been around. Now that that happened in the Doctrine and Covenants too. If you compare the 1833 version to the 1835 version, they went and redacted a lot of the things that they had changed. So I think this is completely in, in line with that. So those are those are the the key changes I see, and I think those kind of go together to say. It's likely that Joseph Smith was was getting further and further away from the actual events into his mind. If you're going to take a, a, a witness account, you're going to take the earliest one. The, the the ones that come after, if there's details that aren't in the first account that are in the later one, those are automatically in question. So, John, could you compare this to, with a, a typical story that you and I might tell um, of a, an event that happened to us you know, in our personal lives, like when I remember when I was 14, I was running around a cliff area and I ran around a corner and there was a rattlesnake snake curled up in the, in the, um, thing. And he was all reared up and hissing at me. And, and, uh, it's, I probably wet my pants that I was so scared over the years, you know, I, that, the, the events, um, as my verbal ability to use the language has increased as my storytelling and my my uh, ability to put things in terms of framework has increased, and the fact that I've gotten you know more gullible kids now, 
um, I can I can yarn I can tell a yarn that goes a mile a minute on that story. Yeah, and I think if you started throwing in more details, like you you know when you first told it, like you look in your journal, it says I was walking along a cliff, and then later it tells you the color of the pants and describes the sunset. You're like you've likely gone off the tracks. Uh, it's it's unlikely. Well, I could- I see that happen a lot with him. I mean, early on in my life, I would have said, yeah, it was in the afternoon. Later on in my life, I might say, you know, the russet sky and the and the the rocks were hard and the color of ash or, you know, things like that. Does that – is there any of that going on in the narrative and can compare that type of a, of a situation going on in Joseph's life as he told this um, over the years? So, George, are you asking if the narrative itself can be embellished without, um, you know, erasing the event that actually happened in history? Correct. It's just been embellished over time. Yeah, well, he became a public speaker. He became a public figure. His ability to speak in front of audiences and to write changed over the years. Would there be natural um, growth in the story just because of that? I I think so. That's we don't have time to go into all the research on witness testimony. And if you go read stuff that like attorneys read or police officers read, there's all sorts of research done on it. And you, you know, I, I, I believe that as the years go by, he becomes himself a less credible witness. Now let's, let's do put an asterisk on that. That doesn't mean that he's lying. He very well might've believed everything he said in each of those things. But you know, the 1832 account by his, Depending on when you assume these things happen, that was 12 years later. And, of course, the, the, the 42 event was 22 years later, remembering something he did when he was a boy. I mean, think back for each of you when you were 14 or 15, trying to remember some event in detail. And, and it's key, when we get into this 32 account, he himself expresses confusion around the event 12 years later. So, you know, well, why don't we just get started? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd like to see where this takes us. Okay. Any other comments before we start with the first account? I, I would just say, from 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 what that discussion uh, led to, we need to put a link up on the site to Elizabeth Loftus' um, study about the malleability of memory lost in a shopping mall, and then just let people, you know, who are interested, take it from there. But that that's really interesting study to to apply to this. Yeah, I, I have a great article I was going to post from the New York Times. Um, from uh, 2002, and I'll, I'll post a link up to it. The article is called Ideas and Trends for Air Crash Detectives Seeing Isn't Believing, and it talks about the crash of American Airlines Flight 587 and how the witnesses saw and swore by all these things that were just impossible to happen. And some of them said it veered left, and some of them veered, it veered right. And then it, it, the article goes on to talk about why witnesses are not um, reliable, especially adult witnesses, because adult witnesses filter everything through what they think should be happening. Um, so, uh, I'll, I'll post a link up to that. And there's a whole great body of of work on, on this topic out there. And and the only other thing I've got to say, cause it's just going to nag at me. These aren't myths. They're legends. (laughs) Well, I'm splitting hairs. Well, that's where I, and and to be technical, it's a memorat, but (laughs) I could get into that later on. But see, I knew, I knew somebody was going to say that Glenn. That's why I started reading those quotes from the church for the church. Yeah, I know. These have to be concrete. These can't be myths. These can't be legends. These these are the foundational event of the church. Well, but a memorat, a, a memorat is a personal 
experience with the supernatural. And so you can have a memorat that, that is, is exactly what George talked about, where it's this experience that you had with the supernatural that gets embellished over time. And then it becomes a post memorat where other people start telling it as a third person story until through the process of time, it becomes a legend. And, you know, the, the, the common usage of legend is, oh, it's not true. But, but when, when a folklorist is talk, talking about these things, they're not, there, there's no truth value on whether or not it's a legend. There's no truth value on whether a myth is true or not. I mean, it, it's got a completely different set of defining characteristics for those terms. But th that's just me being, you know, the former academic that has a little spur in his side when we're using the, the wrong terminology. So I, I actually I, think it's an excellent point. No, no, I think it's a great point, Glenn. And I think if we look at other religions, like let's say Christianity, if somehow somebody was to prove that, say, one of the miracles in the book of Matthew was not true, that it was a legend, that somebody had embellished it, nothing changes. Christianity does not hang on the literal truthfulness of turning water into wine or Jesus walking on the water. The same with yeah. um, Buddhism or the, the Hindu Vedas. There's hardly anything in there that has to be literally true for those religions to be accepted as truthful. But for some reason, and maybe it's because it was born in the 19th century, Mormonism has hung its hat on the literal truthfulness of these events. And, and it's really a difficult thing for them to disentangle. If they hadn't insisted that, you'd be perfectly right, and the religion would be uh, much easier to swallow. Well, it probably would. I, I mean, and, and I'm coming from this postmodern, uh, you know, there is no literal truth. You know, the, the, <laughs> even, even the, stor the stories of events that actually happen to us are filtered. You know, we, we select the events that we tell and we omit so much of what was actually there. So, so just by the nature of creating a personal narrative, we've already created a fiction. And the only thing you need to add to that fiction to turn it into a legend is time. Yes. And unfortunately, Mormonism didn't have that big span of time before the modern era came out, you know, yeah. where we can't, we can't really question the veracity of the of the stories of the Buddha. They're just too lost in time. But Joseph yeah. doesn't have that um, privilege. Okay, any other comments before we get started? All right, for our listeners out there, we're going to try something new. I have gotten an actor who's going to play the role of Joseph Smith. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to read each of the accounts, and then we're going to discuss them. So you can hear them all without having to turn to your text. Now, for the first three, we're using the Dean Jesse text that was published in BYU Studies in 1969. Um, so if you want to get a copy of that, that's the text that we're using. Of course, um, there, like all historical documents, there are, there are terms that have been scratched out. And, and if you get the, uh, these um, early texts, you can see all the, all the changes that have happened. But um, that's the text we'll be using. All right, so here we go. This is the 1832 account um, from the Kirtland. This is the 1832 account from the Kirtland Letter Book. All right. A History of the Life of Joseph Smith, Jr., an account of his marvelous experience and all of the mighty acts which he doeth in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, of whom he beareth record, and also an account of the rise of the Church of Christ in the eve of time, according as the Lord brought forth and established by his hand. Firstly, he receiving the testimony from on high. Secondly, the ministering of angels. Thirdly, the reception of the holy priesthood by the ministering of angels to administer the letter of the gospel, the law and commandments as they were given them to him, and the ordinances. Fourthly, a confirmation and reception of the high priesthood after the holy order of the Son of the living God, power and ordinance from on high to preach the gospel in the administration and demonstration of the Spirit. 
the keys of the kingdom of God conferred upon him and the continuation of the blessings of God to him. I was born in the town of Sharon, in the state of Vermont, North America, on the 23rd day of December, A.D. 1805, of goodly parents who spared no pains to instructing me in the Christian religion. At the age of about ten years, my father, Joseph Smith Sr., moved to Palmyra, Ontario County, in the state of New York, and, being in indigent circumstances, were obliged to labor hard for the support of a large family. Nine children required the exertions of all that were able to render any assistance for the support of the family. Therefore, we were deprived of the benefit of an education. Suffice it to say, I was merely instructed in reading, writing, and the ground rules of arithmetic, which constituted my whole literary acquirements. At about the age of twelve years, my mind became seriously impressed with regard to all the important concerns for the welfare of my immortal soul, which led me to searching the scriptures, believing as I was taught that they contained the word of God. Thus, applying myself to them and my intimate acquaintance with those of different denominations led me to marvel exceedingly, for I discovered that they did not adorn their profession by a holy walk and godly conversation agreeable to what I found contained in the sacred depository. This was a grief to my soul. Thus, from the age of twelve years to fifteen, I pondered many things in my heart concerning the situation of the world and mankind, the contentions and divisions, the wickedness and abominations, the darkness which pervaded the minds of mankind. My mind became exceedingly distressed, for I became convicted of my sins, and by searching the scriptures I found that mankind did not come unto the Lord, but that they had apostatized from the true and living faith, and there was no society or denomination built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ as recorded in the New Testament. I felt to mourn for my own sins and for the sins of the world, for I learned in the scriptures that God was the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he was no respecter of persons, for he was God. I looked upon the sun, the glorious luminary of the earth, and also the moon rolling in its majesty through the heavens, and also the stars shining in their courses, and the earth also upon which I stood, and the beast of the field, and the fowls of heaven, and the fish of the waters, and also man walking forth upon the face of the earth in majesty. And in the strength of beauty, whose power and intelligence and governance things, which are so exceedingly great and marvelous, even in the likeness of him who created them. And when I considered upon these things, my heart exclaimed, Well hath the wise man said, It is a fool that saith in his heart there is no God. My heart exclaimed, All these bear testimony, and bespeak an omnipotent and omnipresent power, a being who maketh laws, and decreeth, and bindeth all things in their bounds, who filleth eternity, who was, and is, and will be, from all eternity to eternity. And when I considered all these things, and that that being seeketh such to worship him as worship him in spirit and in truth, I cried unto the Lord for mercy, for there was none else to whom I could go and obtain mercy. And the Lord heard my cry in the wilderness. And while in the attitude of calling upon the Lord, in the sixteenth year of my age, a pillar of light, above the brightness of the sun at noonday, came down from above and rested upon me, and I was filled with the Spirit of God. And the Lord opened the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord, and he spake unto me, saying, Joseph, my son, thy sins have forgiven thee. Go thy way, walk in my statutes, and keep my commandments. Behold, I am the Lord of glory. I was crucified for the world, that all those who believe on my name may have eternal life. The world lieth in sin at this time, and none doeth good, no, not one. They have turned aside from the gospel, and keep not my commandments. They draw near to me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and mine anger is kindling against the inhabitants of the earth, to visit them according to this ungodliness, and to bring to pass that which hath been spoken by the mouth of the prophets and apostles. Behold and lo, I come quickly as it is written of me in the cloud, clothed in the glory of my Father.
and my soul was filled with love, and for many days I could rejoice with great joy, and the Lord was with me, but could find none that would believe the heavenly vision. Wow, that was great. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll point out to our listeners that um, we're planning on putting that in in post. Um, we haven't heard it. All right, but we did read it. But I heard it in inspiration in Revelation. Yes. Okay, so 1832. Uh, Mike, go ahead. Now, I was going to say that account was uh, dictated to Frederick G. Williams uh, between summer and late November of 1832. So Joseph dictated that one. I think something funny about it is there is no punctuation throughout the entire thing. It is one giant sentence. Yeah, kind of like the the Book of Mormon is that way, too. There was no punctuation in the the manuscript copy. Uh, one it thing says is, that these were three pages that were cut out of the volume. Do, do we know why they were cut out of the main? I, I don't remember, but I know we can match them up, so we know that these were the 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 originals. Um, but um, yeah, I don't remember. Uh, of note, he states in this one that it was the sixteenth year. He was reflecting back. Yeah, um, in the eighteen thirty two, he says in the sixteenth year of my age, meaning when he was 15. Right. Um, and I think that's another, that's a key where the early, the, this early um, event lacks concrete occurrence. This one of the things I said in the beginning. In the later event that we're all familiar with, he talks about it being a spring day and, you know, he gives a lot more detail. And now he's just saying, in this one, in the 16th year of age. So here we have going from general to specific. Um, also, you'll notice that in this one, in the thir- 1832 account, he begins by saying that he was studying the scriptures beginning at the age of 12, and that led him to believe that all Christian sects were wrong. Um, here's, his, here's his quote from there. I found that mankind did not come unto the Lord, but they had apostatized from the true and living faith, and there was no society or denomination that built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ as recorded in the New Testament. According to Joseph Smith, he found that out by reading the scriptures before he ever saw God. Now, what might might feed into that is both his grandfather and his father both had that same attitude. They wouldn't join a church because they felt the true church wasn't on the earth at the time. And so he might have adopted that from his father and grandfather. The neat thing for me about that in his own words was I kind of always had this sense that, you know, he was 14 and this was over the matter of two or three weeks he was studying and and then all of a sudden he looked up in the scriptures one day and he went out and prayed and all this happened. Letting him have two or three years to kind of develop this mentality and develop this uh, this frame of reference actually rung true a little bit better for me because it it makes more sense than what I know about 12 13 14 year old boys that they just their their minds kind of start working and it takes them two or three years to kind of put everything together yeah but of course the problem with this sentence we'll, we'll see in the 1838 account it directly contradicts what he later says um, oh about the the year that it occurred no, the, the the fact that here you see Joseph Smith as the agent. Joseph Smith is studying the scriptures, and he discovers that the churches are in apostasy. He then goes and prays to God. In the 1838 event, which we'll get to in a minute, he specifically states that he had never, that thought had never crossed his mind, that all the churches could be in apostasy. Yeah, that's the one thing about this. that I like the fact that he started when he was 12, but the, the two things did kind of, not make sense. And you'll notice the James 1.5 is missing from this account. You know, that became, in later accounts, the catalyst, that if you lack wisdom, it wasn't a lack of wisdom. He had the wisdom in, in the 1832 account. He knew that the churches were in apostasy. 
That's why he. That's why he prayed to God. I still think you know. I, I, when when you go back and you tell stories, and, and you you understand the reaction that your audience gets, and you start to define your thesis a little bit more. I mean, I can see how he would start off, you know, with with what he's saying here, but but realize that it makes more of an impact later on to say that he didn't realize that. Uh, all the other churches were astray, and that that's a detail that, that kind of changed through time. I, I don't think that has to legitimize or, or illegitimize uh, his experience here. The, the thing that really sticks me <laughs> with this is the very first line, uh, a history of the life of Joseph Smith Jr., an account of his marvelous experience and all the mighty acts which he doeth in the name of Jesus Christ. You know, you, you mentioned, John, that the his own embellishment of himself increases throughout that's a pretty big place to start from oh it gets better you're right yeah, and, and and this account begins with i joseph having been born of goodly parents which of course he's playing on the whole book of mormon nephi thing you know yeah. the, the parallels between joseph and nephi have been pointed out time and time again but um yeah i mean even at this stage joseph smith joseph smith is a lot of good things but humility is not one of his fortes did, did you guys listen to the Truman Madsen, Joseph Smith tapes? Yes, those are great. Uh, yeah, I mean, those were like a big staple of my mission. You know, the, they, they kind of were floating around in, in these uh, pirated copies that we'd make for each other. And I, I remember I, one of the lines in there, Truman Madsen was talking about the principle of self-aggrandizement and that, that Joseph Smith actually talked about that you know, there there is something to self-aggrandizement. You know, Abraham, he uses as an, exa- as an example, was wanting further, you know, light and knowledge and went to the Lord in, in prayer. And, you know, so I've, I've always taken that, um, you know, from Truman Madsen that there's a bit of self-aggrandizement that's okay. But as I've started getting into reading some of what Joseph Smith wrote about himself, I've been bowled over. <laughs> I, and, and I think maybe one of the first times that happened to me, John was your Nauvoo Expositor podcast a few months ago when you've got William Law's very, you know, I I thought nicely written preface to to the Expositor and then Joseph's uh, response to it and hearing those words, I just kind of went, that doesn't, that doesn't really fit with what I've heard from President Hinckley and President Benson about the, 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 the gracefulness of the, the prophet. Well, so that, that's the thing that sticks out to me, that language at the beginning, that kind of self-aggrandizement stuff. And self-aggrandizement, you have to understand you can have confidence in yourself, but there's, it's mingled with humility. Joseph was saying, you know, this was a marvelous Mike, experience. Mike, Why should Mike, I name it as anything else? Yeah, go ahead. Don't, don't talk about humility. <laughs> Why is that? I, I'm, I'm just saying. <laughs> confidence mingled with humility is like philosophies of men mingled with Scripture. I don't know what that is. I don't know what you're talking about. Anyway. Uh, all right. Um, let's see. So the the next thing I have is Joseph proclaims God to be omnipresent in this um, passage, which is a very fascinating turn of phase since this is the this is the event that's used to establish in Mormonism that God is not omnipresent, that God is a physical being. And this goes with all the early accounts at this at this time. Joseph Smith has a strictly Trinitarian view. It wasn't until later 
that um, Joseph Smith started talking about God and Jesus as being separate individuals. So this is perfectly consistent with the doctrines that show up in like lectures in faith um, and and the revelations from the time that have God and Jesus as a Trinitarian entity. That that's pretty strong in the Book of Mormon as well, isn't it? With Absolutely. with Abinadi especially. Yeah, there there is no doctrine of the separation of God and Jesus in the doctrine in the Book of Mormon at all. Um, and of course, through this whole narrative, he refers to the um, vision as the Lord. He doesn't make any distinction um, and doesn't mention anything about two separate beings being present. That's the biggest one for me that I picked up in this thing is is there just was no mention of of two or more beings in the in the vision at all. And you think that the very first one that he was writing it down, either whether he's writing it down on his own or describing it describing it to somebody. That's something you just don't forget. Well, and, and from my the, the preface to this discussion that I gave, this 1832 account does nothing for Mormonism. It doesn't establish anything. Um, as a matter of fact, the two, a couple things it asserts turn out to be untrue. Well, we'll get there. Um, I, I do want to... One of the things that it, it reminded me of is it sounded a little bit, bit like some of the stories that I hear my Christian evangelical friends, that they were having these doubts. They went out, they prayed, they had a spiritual experience um, where they where they first acknowledge their sins, and then they have a spiritual experience. And it, and it kind of, now he goes into a lot more detail, of course, but it had that flavor to it, where there wasn't anything definitely Mormon about it. It was more what a, a Christian born-again experience would uh, would sound like. Well, I, I and, and that's where you're getting in that tail type. You know that that I talked about earlier, where you've got this traditional outline that a, an experience. When you're describing an experience, you know wh whether this is a real experience or not. But but you take your experience and make it fit to the cultural expectations with this tale type. So I, I I see that, George. Well, I I think the cultural expectations we can figure out where they come from. Joseph Smith says. Um, I was filled with the Spirit of God, and the Lord opened the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord. And then he goes on. That's very language. That's language is very consistent with the biblical events. See, especially like the um, martyrdom of Stephen or the baptism of Christ. Joseph Smith is using that same language that that exists in the New Testament. And I've never heard an, a Mormon argue that the martyrdom of Stephen, which uses the virtually the same language, was a first vision or a, you know a, a vision sort of event like Joseph Smith's. And he also uses language like the pillar of fire came down and rested upon me, and I was filled with the Spirit of God. Um, these are language that, that, to me, that indicate a very sort of internal event. This is something that Joseph Smith is is seeing internally, like a vision, and that's what I mean. That's what he called it—a a vision, you know, as opposed to, "Hey, I, I was walking down the street and I ran into God." No one would describe that as a vision if they're describing the concrete event. You, you said something that confused me there, John, about Stephen, because the way that I was introduced to that—that that the martyrdom of Stephen was that it was a first vision type story where he saw God and Jesus standing side by side and it, it was it was one of those scripture mastery things that we could you know reach into our arsenal and pull out against you know any Bible bashers to prove the the, the separate nature of God and, and Jesus is, is that different yeah. from how you guys learned it so you no, I agree with you Glenn that's always been that way it's always been a, a real event you could look to is the separation of the Trinity and everything you guys were taught that God the Father and Jesus Christ appeared in the flesh at the martyrdom of Stephen no, no he looked up and that he saw them 
you know, I mean, I, I've never really thought of it the way you're describing it, John, as a, an internal or an external thing. And that's a good point. I, but 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 it was always, you know, that that he saw them, you know, whether it was spiritualized or physicalized or however you want to say it, that that it was like the first vision. So and, and so it, it could be a model for Joseph. So hundreds of thousands of people have claimed to see have seen God in in, in vision. Right. I mean, that's and that, towards is. that that's pretty common. Um, so the question here is, is Joseph Smith having a common experience or is he having an experience that sets him apart from everybody else? And uh, the language of this 1832 vision, the, it's 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 very common. Uh, this this language would would be consistent with all sorts of stuff you'd see at the time. Agreed. Yeah. I think that's why he didn't use it, and the primary focus of the early missionaries was the Book of Mormon, because you had a lot of people going around claiming a first uh, vision-type experience. And that's why the Book of Mormon was used in the early days as a missionary tool as opposed to this story. Okay, here's the next key element that I see here, um, that the message that Joseph Smith gets from God is that his sins are forgiven. It's a very personal message to Joseph. There is no direction in this first vision at all that Joseph Smith should start a church which is very consistent, actually, with what was going on in 1832. They, they still had very loose organization, organizational ideas about um, the church. It was a, a church of prophets. It was a church of elders. But it wasn't a church that was the hierarchical thing that emerged in Nauvoo. So, so the idea here that where, that where later he uses this story to use as a foundation for him establishing a church, that, that's completely missing in 1832. Isn't it possible, though, that... You know, he, he wrote this down and, you know, I, I can imagine and it's all imagined this conversation where people are looking through it and going, you know, Joseph, you never say in here that God told you to to uh, establish a church. And yet here we all know that you've established the church and Joseph say, oh, yeah, yeah, I didn't I didn't put that in. Well, if you put but, if but you it look... was assumed because everybody knew that that's what, what he was doing. And, you know, as you kind of go through this process of refining a narrative. You, you recognize, oh, there's things I left out. Oh, there's things that I need to... I, I didn't make that very clear. I've got to clear that up in later events. I, I, it just seems like that's a, a, a possibility. That is a possibility, but is it more likely that he was inserting things later? To no, what Christ well, I'm says... Saying, he is inserting things later. I mean, I, I, I just said he's inserting things later to refine it. But that doesn't mean it wasn't in his mind at the time or that it wasn't in, you know... Uh, people's understanding uh, around him. Yeah, what Christ actually says there, what Christ actually says there is uh, he's upset about the ungodliness of the earth, and then you have to put a break between ungodliness and, and it says, and to bring to pass that which have been spoken by the mouth of the prophets and apostles is why he's come to talk to Joseph. There, there, is, a, there is a part there where you can read in and, and say, I've come to bring to pass that which has been prophesied. You're, the, you're going to restore the gospel. Uh, but... I, I agree with that, that Joseph believed that he had restored the gospel. What I'm saying is that's different from the foundation of a church, which later comes out in these first vision accounts. Um, couple, I, Go ahead, go ahead. I just wanted to put one last thing. The part that I like best about this is at the end it says, And my soul was filled with love for many days, and I could rejoice with great joy, and the Lord is with me. But I could find none that believed the heavenly vision. Anyone that has a, an experience where the Holy Ghost fills you like that, you, you have that expression of love towards your fellow man. So that is a real account of being filled with the Holy Ghost. Um, when, yeah. you, when the Holy Ghost is upon you like that, it changes you, your outlook towards everyone. But, but Mike, I, I actually made a note that, that I kind of 
have a concern about this because God says, mine anger is kindled against the inhabitants of the earth to visit them according to this ungodliness and to bring to pass that which hath been spoken by the mouth of the prophets. I come quickly. I'm angry. I'm going to destroy everybody. That doesn't sound like a message of love. It, it, and it, you, I think you, you said earlier on that in later messages, he kind of softens the, the tone of what's being said here. But this is, you know, pretty harsh towards everybody, that there's not one single good person or good act in, in the world. And, you know, I mean, I guess if, if you're told that you're forgiven of that, you'd go away feeling, oh, I'm loved of God. Well, as, 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 the, as, the, as the restoration time period we're talking about, this is preparation for Judgment Day. We're preparing the earth to receive Christ who is going to punish the wicked and all this. So you're beginning this time period of preparing the world for that Judgment Day. So that's what he's doing with Joseph. I'm coming to judge the world. You're going to prepare, prepare it for my coming. That's why they always thought in the early days of the church, the millennium's right around the corner, not, not understanding how much work had to be done. But that's wrong. I mean, God, God here is lying, right? There's nothing, what do you mean? This was 190 years ago. There's nothing imminent right. happening. Well, Joseph eventually caught on to that, that it's not imminent. So why, so they, why they is God being was. deceptive? Well, He's not being uh, deceptive. It, it's only been a couple seconds in God's time, John. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so God's confused about what's going on down here? No, it's, his clock is set to go loud. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, you know there's but, a, there's a lot of stuff that has to happen before Christ can come. All so the why does he say? Why does he say? Preached. He says that he's the the destruction is imminent, that the the wickedness has filled the world. Everybody and every event that he's talking about is long gone. What do you mean everybody's long gone? They're all dead. This was 190 years ago. Right. This is the ushering in of the time of preparation for the second coming. Where the, the gospel has to be preached to all the inhabitants of the earth. This is the start of that time period. But in their sideways reality... Oh, no, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Joseph's doing. He's, he's ushering in the time when the gospel is going to fill the earth. Everything's been prepared, and now it's, he's starting this time period. All right. One other thing that Glenn brought up that I, I, I want to point out again. Um, he did say, Joseph Smith said, um, I could find none that would believe the heavenly vision. Um, there is no evidence whatsoever that Joseph Smith ever mentioned this to anybody at this time. Friend well, wait. you got to look at the, uh, the account of uh, Mrs. Palmer. Okay. Now, the, the Palmers were a family that uh, Joseph went to work for as a farm boy. Um, Mrs. Palmer's account reflecting on when Joseph was in her employment said the excitement stirred up among some of the people over Joseph's first vision. Um, a churchman, she recalls, came to her father to remonstrate against his allow allowing such close friendship between his family and the boy Joseph. Uh, but the father, pleased with Joseph's work on the farm, was determined to keep him on. Uh, the vision, he said, that it was the sweet dream of a pure-minded boy. Later, the daughter reports Joseph claimed to have had another vision, and this time it led to the production of a book. The churchman came again, and at this point, the girl's father turned against Joseph. But she adds significantly that, that by then it was too late. Joseph Smith had a following. To a two, so they, two issues there, Mike. One, they don't mention the first vision at all. Everybody, Joseph Smith was supposed to be a visionary guy. Secondly, when was this written? Mrs. Palmer's account, um, I think it's when they went 
I don't know. I don't have a time period for the account. Okay, so so that, that, that's a problem because we're looking for contemporaries, and we know, and we'll go into this later on. But we know his mother didn't know anything about this. What my my point is that Joe Smith claims that this thing was rejected, but there is no 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 um record of his of his of a, of his um giving it to anybody. I guess I, I thought that we do have a record. I thought we do have record of his family members recording in their journals that when he came home, he started telling them about this. He talked about visions and angels, right? Um, but not about seeing God and Jesus and right. And we'll talk. We'll talk in the stuff. end about people who apparently never knew about this, and there's some okay. surprising names you'll see on the on the list. But I, I think one thing is 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 key here in this whole thing, and kind of Glenn and I have been going back and forth on this. We're, there is only Joseph Smith's word to go on for this, and likely for the Book of Mormon, it's very similar. His word and some of his friends. So the 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 believer is left with a um, dilemma of credulity: should we believe Joseph Smith? So as we go through all of this and we see these these issues, that's that's the question. I want everybody going through their head: be they believer or non-believer. Should we give Joseph Smith the benefit of the doubt through this whole thing? Is this likely to be a true story? That's and that's that's partly my my point. All yeah, right, and, and to me, it comes back to that missionary approach. If it was true, wouldn't it be awesome? I mean, and it's like that Alma thirty two again. If you can even hope to believe, can you let that hope work in you to create some conviction? And I can totally see how that that happens, and you know, we, we kind of said in a scoffing tone a little bit earlier, um, you know, that this was the greatest thing to ever happen since the resurrection. Well, I mean, if it's true, uh, well, what is better? Well, I think for a people of faith and a people who want to believe, this is one of those things that you almost say, yeah, I can, I can believe that. This sounds reasonable. This sounds real. I don't think all the churches are right either. Why not a 14-year-old boy? It had to happen to somebody. Um, so let's, let's be a, a believing organization and choose to believe it, yeah, not have yeah. proof, not have proof to believe it, but yeah. choose to have faith in it. My, my, my father-in-law, um, takes that line perfectly, you know, and, and he just says, like the basis of his testimony is Joseph Smith was a 14 year old boy. And like his, my, my father-in-law's perception of God is that. You know, if he is going to do something like this, he would do it through somebody who hasn't been brought up in a religious seminary somewhere and, and you know, already filled with the doctrines of, of men. And and he, my, my father-in-law doesn't have any kind of spiritual witness or, you know, he, he doesn't read the Book of Mormon, he doesn't care about these things. He likes family. But that's that's kind of the crux of his testimony is this 14-year-old boy. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like the sort of thing that God would do. It doesn't. It really doesn't make any sense to me. But to him, it works out fine. All right, and I think that's typical of a lot of members. I think that's a, yeah. that's a, a fairly normal sort of reaction. All right, any other thoughts on the thirty-two account before we move to the thirty-five account? Okay, the the eighteen thirty-five account, um, which was published um, from the Joseph Smith Diary, November 9th, eighteen thirty-five. Um, let's roll that one. Monday, November 9th. While sitting in his house this morning between the hours of 10 and 11, a man came in and introduced himself to him, calling himself Joshua, the Jewish minister. 
His appearance was something singular, having a beard about three inches in length, which was quite gray. His hair was also long and considerably silvered with age. He had the appearance of a man about fifty or fifty-five years old. He was tall and straight, with a slender frame, blue eyes, thin visage, and fair complexion. He wore a green frock coat and pantaloons of the same color. He had on a black fur hat with a narrow brim. When speaking, he frequently shut his eyes and exhibited a kind of scowl upon his countenance. Joseph made some inquiry after his name, but received no definite answer. The conversation soon turned upon the subject of religion, and after the subject of this narrative had made some remarks concerning the Bible, he commenced giving him a relation of the circumstances connected with the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, which were nearly as follows. Being wrought up in my mind respecting the subject of religion, and looking at the different systems taught the children of men, I knew not which was right or who was wrong, but considered it of the first importance to me that I should be right in matters of so much moment and matter involving eternal consequences. Being thus perplexed in mind, I retired to the silent grove, and there bowed down before the Lord, under a realizing sense, if the Bible be true, Ask, and ye shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened. Seek, and ye shall find. And again, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not. Information was what I most desired at this time, and with a fixed determination to obtain it, I called on the Lord for the first time in the place above stated, or in other words, I made a fruitless attempt to pray. My tongue seemed to be swollen in my mouth, so that I could not utter. I heard a noise behind me like someone walking towards me. I strove gain to pray, but could not. The noise of walking seemed to draw nearer, and I sprang upon my feet and looked round, but saw no person or thing that was calculated to produce the noise of walking. I kneeled again. My mouth was opened and my tongue loosed. I called on the Lord in mighty prayer. A pillar of fire appeared above my head, which presently rested down upon me, and filled me with unspeakable joy. A personage appeared in this midst of the pillar of flame, which was spread all around, and yet nothing consumed. Another personage soon appeared like unto the first. He said unto me, Thy sins are forgiven thee. He testified also unto me that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I saw many angels in this vision, and I was about fourteen years old when I received this first communication. Okay. Um, thoughts? That was remarkable. This one was so this, written by... Uh, go ahead, George. Yeah, this one just seemed odd to me. This is the, the Jewish... You know, he's sitting down with a friend. It sounds like they're having... Uh, you know, they just met. They're having two guys having a drink over the... Watching the, the stream go by. Or, you know, a couple got a couple lines in the water, and they're talking about religion. And Joseph starts telling us an experience. I mean, it was kind of fascinating. I don't put a lot of bank on this just because it seemed so casual of an experience. It, well, this is Joseph, this is an this is an account recorded by Warren uh, Warren Cowdery, and he was overheard the conversation when Joshua, the Jewish minister, came to town. Who was a character, and kind of a strange strange guy. And this is just Joseph recounting what what occurred. Him yeah, so I, I don't know. For for me personally, this one's accuracy doesn't seem to to matter that much. I mean, Joseph could have been, you know, mistaken. It wasn't an official recounting. He was just telling a story. You know, the the, the Jewish guy was probably telling some stories back and forth, and they were probably swapping yarns. And and Joseph wrote wrote this, and then somebody wrote the whole thing down. Um, you know. 
Well, I, I think the Jewish guy's beard was probably four to five inches long. Oh, instead of three to four? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was interesting that that got mentioned. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about this one is the first time he quotes James. Well, it's the first time we have recorded that he quotes James. Uh, he doesn't yeah, give it a scriptural reference. Yeah, yeah, but the one thing I want to I want to respond to you guys is um, poo pooing of this account. Um, <laughs> Joseph Smith was always very concerned about accuracy of what he saw, meaning he went and redacted stuff all the time. He went and fixed things, um, and he constantly reworked his his message. The idea that this somehow slipped into his journal and then he didn't mess with it. And he just went unaware of it. I, I I think is is unbelievable. I mean, he he reviewed everything very carefully. He was always going back and and working on that. I just don't I just don't buy the idea that this was just this casual guy writing this stuff down, and then you know he just let it go. Uh, it doesn't fit his character. I have no problem with that. All right, so um, you guys were yeah James uh, James one five shows up for the first time here. Yeah, he quotes it, but he doesn't give a scripture reference like he does in the others. Yeah. Um, the other one is, is this is the cool part that we saw in the movie that we all watch when we were kids. When we saw the Joseph Smith movie, Joseph goes to kneel down to pray, and you hear the walking. And in this account, uh, you get the walking. Uh, let's see. I strove again to pray, but could not. The noise of walking seemed to draw near. I sprang to my feet and looked around, but saw no person or thing that was calculated to produce the noise of walking. Um, so we get that cool scene that we saw in the movie when we were little. Yeah. And this, this goes um, to my point. I, you know, I said in the beginning that what I see in this account is moving from simple to grandiose. So what you see in the 32 account is a simple farm boy going out and praying for forgiveness and having a vision. Now what you have is a farm boy who goes down to pray, but the powers of darkness are making a physical manifestation to stop this. You're, you're going from more from less detail to more detail you're adding you're adding things in and making it upping the ante as it were there was no 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 mention of the devil or darkness in the first account it's just just this vision that he had and now you have this um important demonic intervention so i wonder if that's what happened he wrote it down the first time in 1832 it, it kind of was this kind of thing he he talked about it a few years later to um the jewish guy and Somebody records it, and he goes, wow, I, I, that's a pretty good story, you know, this thing's developing into. And so, yeah, he reviewed it, and he left it because he liked what he said and the way it got written down and recorded. That seems reasonable, that he could let the, it kind of become self-embellishing at that point. I, I think in, in the first one that we read, he doesn't get into any detail about the, the actual experience of going to a grove and where he went and kneeling down uh, and, and praying. He just skims over that and gets to what the crux of that message is to him, which is the redemption of his sins personally and, and you know, the message that the whole world's in, in sin. I, I, again, I mean, this isn't one that seems strange to me, that, that if later on people would, you know, if, if he was telling these stories. And, and I imagine that he told it much more than we ever have any record of it being told, that, that it was developing um, over time, wh whether he's adding things that didn't happen or he's adding things that did happen and he's embellishing the things that did happen. I, I can see how that it would grow. Um, and you, you would start getting details like this that would be really intriguing to people. 
Um, hey, so here's, it here's, an embellishment. here's an embellishment example that I, I couldn't figure out as I read through them. So the first one, he, he writes down and he says, a pillar of fire, and he scratches it out and it changes to light. And then in the second one, he, he, it seems to have fixed in on fire. Is this, a, is this an example of embellishment, natural embellishment, that he says, well, if it's going to be light, it sounds better if it's fire? I, I think it's not only embellishment, it's making the, the internal event external, like I said before. So the first event says, a pillar of fire came down and rested upon me. The second account says that a pillar of fire was above his head. So now it's not upon me. It's not an internal thing. It is outside of him, above him, something that's happening externally. Well, the first account says it came down from above and rested upon me. The second one says uh, a pillar of fire was spread all around, and yet nothing was consumed. Um, and that there was a personage uh, in the, the pillar of fire. So the first right. one, the pillar of fire, is an internal event to him. He has this, a pillar of fire descends upon him. Now the pillar of fire is the vessel for this being that he sees, this personage, who, by the way, we, we know is not Jesus, right? No, nah, we don't know it's not here's, Jesus. I, here's his... Like, I see the, the personal, the, the, the fire. I, I see this as Joseph being self-critical and self-editing and, you know, writing down fire, crossing it out because he's going to go, oh, people are going to say, well, why then didn't things burn down if it was fire? He goes, okay, I'm going to change it to light because I can't really describe what it was. And then it gets to later accounts when he, he says, no, fire's the closest to it, but nothing consumed. And, you know, so he's going back and and being a little more explicit about why he was self-editing the way that, that he was. <laughs> okay. on, I'm just talking about possibilities. So, so in terms of explicit, this time he gives us direct words. He says that the personage, he uses the word personage, which is the same words he used to describe his angelic visits. He testified unto me that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I saw many angels in this vision. So, so there's a couple key things there. The, the personage is talking about Jesus Christ and God in third person. Yeah, but even in the account that we have, there's a personage who is God, Father, who testifies of Jesus Christ. So, I, I mean... He doesn't identify who the personage is here, um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I I don't see this as a... Yeah, the father never says, I'm the father. He says, this is my beloved son, and this is Jesus Christ, which is all Joseph sings here, is that he's saying Jesus Christ is the son of God. He Joseph could have been a little tipsy when he was sitting with this Jewish rabbi, and they were throwing back a few and having a nice conversation. So, wait, Mike, who's... <laughs> you might have remembered all the details. Who's, that's, who's what said, I, that's what I envisioned with this, or a fishing line in the river or something like that. So, Mike, who says that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? He says a personage. And who is that? That'd be the Father. The Father said Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Yes. This is my beloved Son here. No, no, it's not what this account says. Don't, don't that's read not what this account says. No, I'm saying So... A lot of the contemporary things refer to Joseph Smith having a lot of angelic, angelic visit, visions. This is perfectly in sync with that. There's nothing in this account to suggest it is a visit from God. You're right. Yeah, I would agree. This is not—when I read this thing through as well, um, the first time I thought, well, the first one was very specific. It said, the Lord. This one just comes and says, some, per, some being appeared— and um, testified about Jesus Christ being the Son of God. 
but there's nothing here to indicate that the personage is God, is Jesus, is Moroni, is Samuel, is anybody. Well, it's just a personage. It I could agree have been with just that. some random angel. But I want to add that in the first one, there's no indication that he's visited at all. He has a vision. The heavens are opened up to him. He sees God. But there's no indication that there is a visitation. In the second one, now he's up to a visitation, and he has a throng of angels there. But it's a personage. And I, I think it would be disrespectful to refer to God as a personage. I don't think he, he would do that. And well, the, second, the first account, he's, he has a whole thing stated to him. How is that not a visitation? Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not getting your, your point either, John, about this being. What's the difference between a, a personage and a visitation? Uh, if he sees them, he sees them, right? Uh, it comes down from above. A visitation is a psychological event, like a dream. A visitation need not necessarily be a real event. God can provide you uh, uh, something in your head. You're not, you're, not, you're not asserting the concrete visit that, that God the Father ascended, uh, descended to the earth in a physical uh, manifestation. There's no avatar of God there. that's what he says there. in the first one. He says it came down from above he says and rested. The vision came down. He's, what did he say came down from above? The light and the brightness of the sun at noonday came down from above and rested upon me. Exactly. He doesn't say that God came down and rested upon him. There is no indication in that first 1832 that he was having anything other than a vision. And visions are common. A vision oh, does so not just spirit. It could be that, that a light came down and, and that there was this physical outward light that came down. And then his mind was opened up as he was enveloped in the, and he had this internal vision. Is, right, is that what you're saying, John? Right. You look at like the dream of Lehi. I don't, I've never heard a Mormon assert that the iron rod and the tree of Lehi was a necessary concrete real event. But they do assert that they had a that Lehi and Nephi had a vision in which they saw those things. There, there's a key distinction there. All right, I got you. I'm with you. All right. So, do we? I'd like to just really quickly cite is is it important to to notice if one is important and more important or more meaningful than the other? If you have a vision or if you have a visitation. Or you have somebody show up physically, you know, you can touch him and all that kind of stuff. Does it does it change the meaning of the fact? I mean, when you know what I mean, if if somebody shows up and they're sitting next to you, is that different than if they call and talk to you on the phone? A vision does not establish the concrete existence of whatever you're envisioning. So the first quotes I read for the church. It's important that these events were concrete and real because they established that Jesus Christ and God the Father are two separate physical beings. And if you're only having a vision, that doesn't establish anything. But what if you had a vision and they were two separate beings in your vision? It, 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 doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't establish the reality of the event. Uh, you know, John the Revelator had the heavens open to him and saw a beast with eyes and locusts flying around. And do, do people assert that, that those are necessarily real? But the, uh, Christians would say that there was a vision and that the, the revelation was real, but not that the events inside were concrete. Uh, and, and I think what you pointed out earlier, John, is, is that it's the shift from the internal to the external. Right, yeah, that's my that's point. That's the telling point to you here. Right, my, once again, state my thesis that we, this is consistent with what you would expect somebody who's embellishing the story as they go along. 
that that the fact that it goes from an internal event, a vision, to a concrete event in later ones, to me, is an indicator that what he's describing here is not real. This is an internal experience that he had. I, I think it's all entirely possible that as a boy he went out and, and prayed in the woods and fell asleep and had a dream or, or whatever happened. But I don't believe that. Uh, the, I obviously, um, you know, anybody listen to podcasts. I don't believe that these things were, were were real. And I'm saying that when I look at these the, these accounts, it it testifies to me to me by the way that Joseph Smith embellishes them that they're not real. Well, you can say he was physically attacked by Satan, and he was he was thought he was going to die. And then when the light came down, he thought it would consume the trees around him because he saw the light hit the trees. They physically came down and hit the trees, and he thought they were going to burn up, and they didn't. And then the attack ceased, the physical attack ceased. So you have external evidences in both of those statements. Okay. Uh, just a couple other things I want to point out. Um, you know, I said that the, the events get more grandiose. Um, in, the, in the 1835, he says that this one, I knew not who was right or who was wrong. This is changing it, you know, where in the beginning, when he went and read the scripture, decided the churches were all in apostasy, and now he's portraying himself as a more humble seeker, as opposed to, you know, somebody who's going to God with the answers already. This is where the term silent grove um, pops in, as, a, as opposed to the wilderness that's in the 1832, you know, making it more, the, the, the telling it becomes more special. Um Relating to the, the evil force, he says, my tongue seemed to be swollen in my mouth so that I could not utter. We're talking real specific things now. You know, he's, he's remembering things in more detail. Um, um, and then the others we, uh, we've already gone through. So, the, the and, and part with, with this second one, wasn't th this was recorded by an observer, whereas the first one was written by his own hand or at least dictated well, it, under it, his direction. It was written by his secretary into his journal. So I, I don't know offhand if it was written real time or if the next day Joseph Smith redictated the event to him. I don't know, but it, but Joseph Smith obviously had it written into his journal. Um, okay. the, the part I'd love more detail on is the angels. Were these concourses of angels singing praises to God? Or were these bodyguards of God? Were these dispensation heads come to witness the event? I, I'd love more detail on that. Wow. And do they have wings or not? That's what I want to know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. All right. Were any of them Charlies? <laughs> yeah, that's the second lost reference tonight. That's enough. Charlie's Angels. Oh, I, I thought you were talking about Charlie from Lost. <laughs> All right. Um, let's see. Any, any more thoughts on the 1835 account? 